Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. According to a CDC report, more than 100 million Americans have diabetes or prediabetes, so it's a hugely important issue right now in the world of well-being. This leads me to this week's guests, Dr. Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbaro, co-authors of the new must-read book that's coming out in a few weeks called Mastering Diabetes. Cyrus and Robbie have been living with type 1 diabetes for a combined total of 36 years, and they've helped thousands of people reverse type 2 diabetes and prediabetes. These people also have reached their ideal weight and generally are thriving all through the power of a plant-based diet. Cyrus, Robbie, welcome. So great to have you here. Thank you so much for having us here, Jason. We really appreciate it. It's really an honor. We have so many great mutual friends and uh, have heard so many wonderful things about you. So great to have you and congrats on this incredible book, Mastering Diabetes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're really excited to be talking about it today because there's, uh, there's a lot of confusion in the world. Of diabetes. There is yes. a lot of confusion. So yeah. let's rewind and you know, what spurred your interest in, di- in, in diabetes? So we were both diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, albeit at different times. Uh, I was a senior in college, just trying to graduate. You know, it's just 2002, so we're looking at 18 years ago. And uh, I was trying to study for finals, and all of a sudden I remember feeling extremely thirsty. I had to go to the bathroom 17, 18, 19, 10, 20 times a day. Wow. And uh, I was very, very tired. So I picked up the phone and I called my sister, who's a doctor of osteopathy, and I said, hey, Shanaz what is happening to me right now? And she started crying immediately. And she said, to drop everything you're, you're, you're doing, go straight to the health center. You have type one diabetes. And I, I literally was like, Shanaz, I don't, I don't have diabetes. Trust me. And she's like, no, you do. Uh, the symptoms that you're describing are classic type one. At that time, I didn't know anything about diabetes. I literally thought it had something to do with old people and cake. That's it. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> here we go. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's the level of knowledge that I had at the time. So show up at the health center. They check my blood glucose. I'm at a 600, which is six times higher than I'm supposed to be. And then they take me to the ER, uh, get checked into the hospital. And within 24 hours, I was diagnosed with two different types of insulin, a blood glucose meter, test strips, a carbohydrate counting guide, a life alert bracelet, and a completely different outlook on life. I was very scared at that time. Not only did I have, you know, the new diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, but I also had two other autoimmune conditions that had set in within a six-month period. So the doctors helped me piece together this puzzle. They said, first, you were diagnosed with Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Second, you were diagnosed with uh, alopecia universalis, which is why I have no hair, no eyebrows, no, no eyelashes, nothing. And then third was type 1 diabetes. So all three of these set in within six months, and I had no idea what was happening. So I returned to my normal life. Uh, I'm following the, the general advice of the practitioners, which is to eat a low carbohydrate diet. So I'm doing that, eating turkey burgers for breakfast, peanut butter, milk, cheese, eggs, small amounts of rice here and there, small amounts of bread here and there, small amounts of fruits. And my glucose is a disaster. It was all over the place. And I, not only was my glucose hard to control, not only was I using more insulin on a daily basis, uh, but I just felt very low energy. My muscles were constantly tight and I just knew that there was a problem. I knew that there, that I wasn't fully addressing this thing called type one diabetes. I wasn't controlling my blood glucose with precision and I could do a lot better. So I started looking for information and one thing led to another and I just got open. My, my mind got open to the idea of being a plant-based eater and, uh, I was literally that guy that used to make fun of vegetarians and vegans when I was growing up. <laughs> you know, my sister from a young age wanted to be a vegetarian and I always would look at her and I was like, Persis, I'm sorry you're making this decision. Like, I wish life was better for you, right? And then here I am faced with the proposition of eating a plant-based diet. And I said, okay, great, you know, I'll try it out. What do I have to lose? So under the guidance of uh, a nutrition professional named Dr. Doug Graham, this is back in 2003, he took me under his wing. He showed me how to eat a diet with lots of fruits and lots of vegetables. And so, you know, I went to a retreat and I was with him for seven days. 
And in that seven day period, my blood glucose fell so rapidly that I had to back off on the amount of insulin I was giving myself very quickly. And after within a seven day period, I had cut my insulin use by 35 to 40% in one week, which is very dramatic. But the kicker is that I wasn't doing it by restricting my carbohydrate intake, which is the sort of classical traditional diabetes model. What I was doing is I was doing the exact opposite. I was eating more carbohydrate energy than I'd ever eaten before. I was eating on per day 600 grams of carbohydrate energy. So I would like five or six tupled my carbohydrate intake and my insulin use got cut by 35 to 40%. So at that point, I was the first time where I was like, wait a minute, hold on. There's something very interesting happening here. I don't have the knowledge to explain it. I want to learn more. So I studied, 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 started reading everything under the sun, went to graduate school to go get a PhD in nutritional biochemistry so I could really understand what was happening in my body and try and explain this scientific experiment. And in the process, I got opened to the idea or to, to over, over 100 years of evidence-based research that actually shows that what I was experiencing had already been documented over and over and over and over again. And that the scientific literature has a, a great deal of knowledge about how to control blood glucose and how to reverse insulin resistance, which we can get into more detail later, um, and how to really manage type mm-hmm. 1 diabetes and how to actually reverse prediabetes and type 2 diabetes altogether. So in this process, it was just sort of these light bulbs went off where I was like, oh my gosh, what I've experienced is actually something that's been documented for so many years. And then when I had met Robbie along the way, we decided that we were going to try and translate this information and try and make it tangible and understandable and practical for real people who really want to try and get to the root of the matter and control their blood glucose like nobody's business. I love it. What about you, Robbie? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 12, just about to turn 13. So my older brother, I have two older brothers, the middle one was diagnosed with type 1 nine years prior to me. So I was quite familiar with the condition. My family knew about it. And I was actually complaining to my mom. I said, Mom, I think I have diabetes. I'm thirsty all the time. I'm going to the bathroom all the time. She said, no, no, don't be silly. You don't have diabetes. Eventually, my parents were out of town. My mom called to check in and say, how are things going at home? I said, I couldn't sleep last night. I was cramping. She said, okay, go upstairs. Use your brother's blood glucose meter and test yourself. I was well over 400. You're supposed to be between 80 and 130, so that's four times what it should be. My brother says, yep, you have type 1 diabetes. Pack your bag. You're going to be in the hospital for a few nights. So we go to the general doctor. We get the official diagnosis. And I see him cry for the first time and just being sad. Hey, man, I'm, I'm sorry. You have to deal with this. And um, that was the beginning of life with type 1 diabetes. My dad and mom flew back home the next night. And I remember being in the hospital. And my dad just saying, it's just an inconvenience. Don't worry. You can do whatever you want in life. Just it's an inconvenience. That's all. And that's kind of the way we approached it. I had great medical care. I was living in Minnesota at the time. We went to the Mayo Clinic. I had an endocrinologist, a psychologist, a dietitian. They really tried to emphasize just trying to make me feel normal, which in hindsight is unfortunate because it's a good opportunity to help somebody improve their health. Mm-hmm. But as a teenager, there's like, you have type 1 diabetes, don't worry. We want you to be just like everybody else. Eat whatever you want, follow the standard dietary guidelines, just learn how to inject the right amount of insulin. <laughs> so that's what I did. And eventually, I started to learn, you know, how can I take better care of myself? How can I, you know, reduce my chances for long-term complications? And my dad was selling supplements. So he was doing network marketing, like Herbalife and stuff like that. And that was the beginning of my mind being open to new, new ways of, of approaching health and nutrition in general. And it was a slow progression, like, hey, maybe try and avoid MSG, eat more organic food, try and get, you know, less processed stuff. So it was a slow evolution. But eventually, in high school, I came across a book called Kevin Trudeau's Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About. Do you remember this book? I think my, my, I do because my grandmother, God rest her soul, like bought it after watching an infomercial. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, what are you doing? It's <laughs> funny, I was watching those same infomercials and I was like, God, this guy seems smarmy, but there's something about him that I like. And I don't know what it is. He's got a nice he, smile. He won over. My grandmother was in her 80s at the time. He won her yeah. over. <laughs> he ended up going to jail. Like, there was yeah. some fraud. Like, we're not yeah. recommending this book. But it planted a seed in my mind that, you know what? Maybe it'll be possible to reverse type 1 diabetes and get my beta cells to work again. And that set me on a mission. It changed my life forever. And I was like, I will do anything and everything to get my body to 
increase the chances of healing itself, regenerating some beta cells from within. That was the goal. You know, if stem cells make all these other new cells all the time, why can't we make new beta cells? It's apparently much more complicated than that. But that led me down this path, trying many different diets. I tried the Western A. Price Foundation diet. I was eating grass-fed beef, a lot of, you know, raw milk. I would go to the local market and buy milk for cats because you couldn't sell raw milk to humans. <laughs> Favorite fact about Robbie. <laughs> so, that's, a big, that's a big tell. Do yeah. not buy food for cats. <laughs> if any medical professional or someone attempting to be, you know, provide medical advice says, buy this thing that cats eat, yeah. run away, guys. Yeah, run, scream. Run, run away. I actually just learned, I've known Robbie for, I don't know, five, six years, and I just learned that fact last week, and I was like, how could you be holding that away, <laughs> holding that from me the entire yeah, it's time? Funny. It's funny. So it's the next title of the book. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying that. Natural cures that work for cats. Yeah, there we go. There we go. That's great. And nothing really changes for my diabetes health. And at this time, I'm suffering from cystic acne. So I'm in high school. I'm taking you know, all kinds of pills, creams, going to the office, getting laser treatments, microdermabrasial treatments. Eventually, they put me on Accutane, which sure. is the most serious drug you can take for acne. Parents have to sign a waiver because some people have committed suicide while on that drug. So it was scary. But I do that. And then I also have plantar fasciitis. So I'm a competitive tennis player. And my, you know, my feet hurt. That's really frustrating. I had allergies year-round, but still get sick, even though I took Nasonex and Claritin-D. I had warts on my feet. Just frustrating symptoms of really the standard American diet, essentially. And I'm not seeing much improvement on this Weston A. Price thing. Eventually, I come across a plant-based ketogenic diet. So this was a Gabriel Cousins program. The movie Raw for 30 Days got me inspired. And I'm eating lots of oil, lots of nuts and seeds, and lots of greens, lots of vegetables. And on this diet, um, this point, I'm a freshman at the University of Florida. And I saw my insulin use come down, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on today in this confusion around this ketogenic world. But I had no energy. There were several situations where I was blacking out on campus and I was just scared at this point. I'm like, I am trying all these different foods and ways of eating and all my friends are just going to the cafeteria eating whatever they want and I'm the one who's feeling terrible. I'm losing weight, this is not good. So I go back to my naturopath and I'm like, okay, what can I try next? She's like, maybe we'll do chelation therapy. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll consider this. So I, would drive, I was considering driving from Gainesville, Florida to Tampa to do this chelation therapy. But before I committed to that, I heard a podcast with Doug Graham and he's talking about how you can eat these fruits and vegetables, and that can actually help you cleanse your body of you know, food stuff that's not supposed to be there when you give yourself some proper nutrition. Okay, wait a minute. I get to eat fruit. I don't have to do this expensive therapy. I don't have to do the driving. I'm gonna give this a shot. So this is September of 2006, I hear the podcast. December 2006, the book comes out. I start reading it straight through, and Cyrus is one of the testimonials in the back of the book. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is cool. Like, great, a type one with these amazing results. I go Google on the internet, see some pictures of this guy. He's ripped, he's fit. I'm like, this is inspiring. I'm gonna, I'm gonna really give this a shot. So I start eating lots of fruits and vegetables. Prior to that, when I was doing the plant-based ketogenic diet, I would have 30 grams of carbohydrate per day, and I got my insulin use down to 10 units. So we're talking a three to one, 24-hour carbohydrate to insulin ratio. Now, I start eating lots of fruits, lots of vegetables as well, increase my carbohydrate content over 700, and I'm needing a normal, a physiological normal amount of insulin, the same amount my pancreas would secrete if I didn't have damaged beta cells. You know, somewhere around like 27, 28 units of insulin right now. You do the math there, that's well over 22 to one on the carbohydrate to insulin ratio, which is well over 600% change in insulin sensitivity. And this was mind-blowing to me. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm eating all this fruit and the amount of insulin I'm eating is absurdly low. You would think you would need hundreds of units of insulin at this point. And so I'm like, mind-blowing. And I go start looking at the research. Again, I'm a student at the University of Florida. I can have access to all the journals. And just like Cyrus, I find out this stuff has been documented for almost 100 years. It was incredible. So that was the beginning of my life changing. I, the skin cleared up, plantar fasciitis went away. I do not use any allergy medications. I don't have allergies. I don't get sick. No more warts on my feet. And I just started to feel amazing and really optimistic about life and just kept on doing it. So now it's 13 years later, and we're excited to be getting this information into more people's hands. So it's 2020, and just a couple of years ago, the latest data I could find, the CDC reported 
100 million people in the United States either have diabetes or pre-diabetes. What are we getting? Like you guys kind of, I think you have it figured out to some degree. Mm -hmm. what, what are the rest of us getting so wrong? So I think there's actually a, a number of problems that this is sort of like the perfect storm right now. And as a result of that, just like you're saying, there's 30 million people diagnosed with some form of diabetes and then another 85 million people that don't even know they have prediabetes. It's a huge problem. And it's only going to be growing over time. They estimate by 2030 that literally one in three people will have some form of diabetes. So you walk into, I mean, you walk into the MindBodyGreen office, not that your employees are that demographic, but you walk over there, you count every third person, diabetes, diabetes, diabetes. It's continuing to grow and it's, it's frustrating. So I think there's a number of reasons that this is happening. Number one, doctors are not trained to talk about food. And that's a huge problem. Doctors are phenomenal people. We love them. We partner with all types of doctors. My sister's a doctor, her husband's a doctor, you name it. They're altruistic people. They go into medicine with a phenomenal uh, idea to want to actually help people get healthier. But they're trained in a system that prioritizes pharmaceutical medication and that's highly influenced by the pharmaceutical industry. So they don't have the tools. They don't have the knowledge to be able to actually help people make the right lifestyle changes. And doctors, unfortunately, are just as susceptible to what's on television and what's in the media as your average person. And so, you know, most people look to their doctor as being a, an authority figure and saying, hey, what should I do? What should I eat? And the answer is, do doctors, they're intelligent people, but they just don't have the right tool set. So I think that's number one. It's a huge right. problem, right? Uh, number two, in addition to that, public health recommendations in today's world are very confusing. They're extremely confusing. They're constantly changing. A couple years ago, eggs were bad. Now eggs are good. Butter is back. Butter is bad. Go high fat. Go <laughs> low fat. Saturated fat is okay. Avoid sugar. No, don't avoid sugar. You know, so your average person has no, literally no idea what they're supposed to follow. And I think what ends up happening over the course of time is that when you hear all these recommendations that are constantly changing, it just, it, it, it breeds a sense of, of apathy. People are just sort of like, you know what? I'm just not going to do anything. The government can't even figure out what I'm supposed to do. How am I supposed to be able to right. figure out what I'm supposed to do, right? Why it's really frustrating. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's, there's, a, there's an author. His name is Simon Sinek. Sure. Uh, very brilliant guy. So he was asked a question about what's the problem with the millennial generation, and he gave this long monologue that was absolutely brilliant. And one of the things that he said is he said, the millennial generation has easy access to dopamine-producing devices from a young age. And he, and he explained why that was a problem. In today's world, I believe that people have easy access to dopamine-producing foods that are highly refined and associated with chronic disease risk. So you go to your you know, grocery store, you go to your local convenience store, you go to a restaurant, refined foods, refined food, refined food, refined food, refined food, everywhere. And these refined foods are actually specifically formulated to actually make your brain feel really good and, and elicit a dopamine response. And as a result of that, you go back for more, you go back for more, and it's created this sort of mild addiction that I think millions of people around the world are suffering from. Well, I also think with regards to nutrition science, we live in an age where what gets the most likes or the, mo the most shares is having uh, oftentimes a sensationalist or extremely strong point of view. Correct. Just what's going on in the world, whether it's politics, nutrition science, so it's one or the other. And mm -hmm. someone just saying, you know, eat more plants, probably not going to get yeah, that's a, good point. a lot of attention. Yeah, exactly. It's right. either in one end, you know, 100% carnivore or 100% yeah. vegan and, and or eliminate this food or that food and mm -hmm. demonize this. And, mm -hmm. and uh, the one thing I've learned about nutrition science is these studies are often very hard to in, in, interpret. They are. Um, and up to, you leave it up to Twitter to decide. You know, it's really not going <laughs> to get us anywhere and you brought up an interesting right. point you know you talked about increasing carbohydrates significantly and I, i've said this before on the podcast carbs are almost like the worst catch-all because mm. it's not like you were just increasing your french fry intake all day and let, let's talk about that like the good carbs and bad carbs and this idea like you know people demonize carbs some people do but like there's an important distinction between the good the good ones and the bad ones absolutely yeah so you're right the the term carbs we we 
do not use the term carbs. We hate it. It's not even a real word. It's just an abbreviation. And uh, you're right. It's a catch-all term. I mean, the, when people make this statement, they say, oh, I know carbs are bad for me. I'm trying to reduce my carb intake. I should eat a right. low-carbohydrate diet. I think what they're insinuating is that they should reduce their intake of refined carbohydrate-rich foods like cookies, breads, cereals, packaged foods, pastas, you know, those types of carbohydrate-rich foods as opposed to fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains, which is a sort of this, the, sure. the basis of the mastering diabetes method. But in the process, people have also been brainwashed into believing that all carbs are bad for them. So people look at a potato now and they're literally just like, yeah, I'm, I'm gaining weight by looking at that potato, right? <laughs> you know, you Overheard get all the time. in Beverly Hills. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, you're right. So what happened to Robbie? What happened to myself? We're just literally an N of two experiment right now. Or sorry, not right now. At the time that we made sure. the dietary transition, we were an N of two experiment. He saw tremendous increases in his insulin sensitivity by eating whole carbohydrate rich foods. I saw the same thing happen in my body by eating whole carbohydrate rich foods. And we've gone on to teach thousands of people how to do this in their own body. And the, the science backs this up, which is that the, the type of carbohydrate you eat absolutely matters. The term whole carbohydrate refers to a, a food that happens to be carbohydrate rich that falls into one of four main categories. Number one, fruits. Number two, starchy vegetables, usually vegetables that are grown in the ground. Number three, legumes, either beans, peas, or lentils. And then number four, whole grains, right? These are carbohydrate-rich whole foods that are either minimally processed or don't require any processing at all. The beauty is that these type of carbohydrate-rich foods come prepackaged with vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. And when you're eating a carbohydrate-rich food that has all of those behind-the-scenes players packed into it, every single bite that you take of those foods increases your overall nutrient density. Mm -hmm. And that is a phenomenal thing. When you're eating these refined, packaged, and processed carbohydrates that come from cookies and crackers and packaged foods, they are the result of a manufacturing process. They've gone, they started out as something real, as, as a potato, perhaps, or as some wheat. And then they went through a refining process, and by cracking and milling and drying and dehydrating and refining, sure. it gets to a, a, a final endpoint where it looks like a cracker, and you put it in your mouth, and sure, it's carbohydrate-rich. No, I'm not going to deny that. But it has also been stripped of the majority of its vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals, leaving you with a very low nutrient density, carbohydrate-rich food that presents some serious metabolic problems. I'm a big fan of nutrient density, and I love when Whole Foods displayed that a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's an important thing that, you know, all, all calories, a calorie is not a calorie. No. Yeah. It's a great concept. I mean, and to be clear on this concept of carbohydrate consumption for people living with diabetes. So we are huge advocates of whole carbohydrate-rich food. That's best. That's optimal. But even when you look at the research, there's some studies that even if it's refined carbohydrate in a low-fat environment, people will see improvements in insulin, insulin sensitivity. So insulin was discovered in 1921. It was first used in humans in 1922. So Dr. Sansom is one of the first physicians to use insulin in his patients. And in 1926, he published a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association titled The Use of High Carbohydrate Diets in the Treatment of Diabetes. So prior to that, just to stay alive, people ate a low-carbohydrate diet. They were not thriving. They were just surviving. They had could not think clearly, they had no energy. We're talking diets of like 400 calories per day, minimal amount of carbohydrate, very high fat, very high in protein, just to stay alive. So in 1926, he's trying to figure out what can I do to improve the quality of life of these patients now that I can use insulin. So he says, you know what, I'm gonna try feeding them potatoes, bread, uh, fruit, and low fat dairy and see what happens. And he was alarmed to see that they did not require more insulin. It's like, wow, he could not believe that. But more importantly, they had energy, they could think clearly, they um, didn't have to spend more money on the diet, it was actually cheaper, and it actually tasted better, it was much more palatable, they didn't have they reduced cravings. So this is the beginning, right when insulin's being discovered, we're seeing doctors <coughs> using a high carbohydrate diet to improve the quality of life. And then in the 1935, Dr. Rabinowitz starts practicing a higher carbohydrate diet in his practice, and he published a five-year randomized controlled trial where 
50 people tried the old diet, lower carbohydrate. 50 people tried the new, fat, new diet, much more high carbohydrate, lower in fat. And he found that the reduction in insulin was 57% in the people eating the higher carbohydrate diet. It was just 1% on the low carbohydrate diet. And he had three times more people completely eliminate the use of medication on the higher carbohydrate diet. And he concluded the study saying carbohydrates increase, whereas fats decrease the sensitivity of the individual animal and man to insulin. This is 1935 Canadian Medical Journal. Same time, Dr. Hemsworth in the UK is publishing very sophisticated experiments on people who were not living with diabetes. He wanted to see how is insulin working in the human body. So 1935, clinical science, he publishes a paper where he fed patients seven different diets over seven days. So they had to eat each diet for seven days, and then he would test their insulin sensitivity. And as the fat decreased, so the high fat diet was 80%, the lowest fat diet was 13% calories from fat. Each step where he decreased the fat content, insulin sensitivity improved. Stepwise increase in insulin sensitivity every step of the way. And he concludes the study saying the greater the amount of carbohydrate in the diet, the greater the sensitivity of the organism to insulin. This is in the 1930s. 80, 80 90 years later, we haven't. Uh, <laughs> so 90 years later, one thing that's definitely in the zeitgeist and trending is keto. When you're talking about fat, what are your thoughts on keto? Oh boy, we got a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so ketogenic diets, uh, you know, it's the most popular dietary trend that's, you know, yeah. potentially have ever existed. And Not people, intermittent fasting, which we'll go to next. Oh, there you go. There you go. We'll, Great. we'll start with keto, though. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Fair enough. Okay. So it, one of the most diet, popular dietary trends. So, yeah, there people have been, uh, you know, adopting a ketogenic diet for, you know, the past 10, 20 years. Uh, you know, Atkins kind of like made it a popular thing back in the 1990s. And then it's kind of gone through multiple different iterations. And now we're sort of at like the lowest carbohydrate version of a, of a ketogenic diet. Point being is that ketogenic diets are, are effective at, uh, at inducing rapid weight loss. And that's the number one reason why doctors are quick to prescribe it as well as people are quick to try it. So, you know, you adopt a ketogenic diet, you're eating either a high quantity of animal foods with a high fat and high protein intake with a small amount of carbohydrate, or there are a lot of people that are adopting a plant-based ketogenic diet as well. In, in both situations, they're basically eating, you know, 70 to 80% of their total calories is fat. And what they find is that as a result of that, their reduction, they, they experience a reduction in their appetite and um, they feel fuller for a longer period of time. They take on less food, they lose weight. As a result of losing weight, not, many things happen that are, that are movement in the right direction. Number one, reduction in fasting glucose. Number two, a reduction in fasting insulin. Number three, a reduction in A1C. Number four, a reduction in most lipids. Okay, total cholesterol goes down, HDL cholesterol goes up, triglycerides go down. This is all good stuff. Uh, and then in addition to that is also a reduction in blood pressure. So as a result of losing weight, these other biomarkers come along for the ride and then you know, three months down the road, six months down the road, people take a look at their new blood work and they say, huh, this ketogenic thing is really working out. This is awesome. I think I can do this for a long time, right? The problem, one of the problems is that uh, people have actually eaten themselves into a higher degree of insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is the condition that precedes prediabetes. And prediabetes is the condition that precedes type 2 diabetes. So by eating a ketogenic diet, they're basically noticing a number of improvements in their blood glucose and their glucose metabolism and their lipid metabolism. Uh, except underlying all of this is that they're actually becoming, they're, they're actually increasing their risk for the development of type 2 diabetes, but they don't even know it. Right. And so this is a huge problem because as you, as you become more insulin resistant, or another term is that more, more glucose intolerant, that actually gr uh, increases your risk for the development of a chronic disease into the future. Now, uh, one of the problems, I think, in the, in the ketogenic world is that um, a lot of ketogenic professional, professionals don't believe that there's, any, that there's any need for eating carbohydrate-rich foods at all in your diet. So the, the way to measure your level of insulin resistance is to administer a glucose challenge or a carbohydrate challenge. So effectively what that would mean is that if you're eating a ketogenic diet, let's say for a week or three weeks or a month, what I would do is I would give you a carbohydrate-rich meal, or I would give you a I would put you through an oral glucose tolerance test to give you, 
you know, a glucose challenge of about 75 grams of glucose. And then I would measure your blood glucose over the subsequent two hours, and I would measure your insulin over the subsequent two hours as well. And then based off of the numbers, we can then conclude how insulin sensitive or how insulin resistant you are. And so if you take an average person living with, uh, you know, any form of diabetes, or even a non-diabetic individual, let's say, you put them on a ketogenic diet, you then give them an oral glucose tolerance test, their performance on that oral glucose tolerance test will show that their blood glucose goes alarmingly high and that their insulin levels also go alarmingly high. Um, but if you don't administer that test, then you will never see it. So the majority of the ketogenic world operates in this physiology where they're only eating fat-rich foods. They're never challenging their glucose metabolism. And as a result of that, they operate under the assumption that everything is fine because their fasting insulin and fasting glucose are low. But in reality, in the glucose challenge state, that's when you see the real, the real problem. And I think there's an important distinction. We discussed this earlier. Are you eating you know, avocados and pistachios all day or are you eating bacon all day? Mm -hmm. And I think what you find with any health trend, people get excited and then processed food comes in and says, you know, here's keto chocolate fudge muffins <laughs> and keto chocolate. I'm like, everyone's got to, you know, so many people have sweet tooths. And then you find it with every, you know, heavily sure. processed. It could be, you know, w whether it's keto or vegan, the same thing happens. At the end of the day, that stuff's not healthy. And then you have people just eating a lot of heavily processed food that fits into their chosen bucket or, or category of, of diet and that's right. a problem too just because it said the word keto on the yeah. packaging or or vegan like both or whatever or you, vegan. vegan or whatever you subscribe to you're like, absolutely you know, right i love uncle eddie's, eddie's vegan cookies you know mm -hmm. probably not good to have that whole bag <laughs> absolutely Which every, i can't even I lo that's like <laughs> it's like whenever i'm on the west coast I'm like i gotta pick up uncle eddie's <laughs> so good <laughs> Um, you know the bat. You know what I'm talking about. I don't actually. Oh, it's like a. Do you know what I'm talking? It's like the healthy version of going to. Uh, it's, it's like the best vegan chocolate chip cookie. Like it's. A, it looks. It's like in a brown lunch bag. It's so like. Old. What I love about them, they've never changed their packaging. Like mm -hmm. it's been that way for like 20 years. Whenever I'm in LA, I'm like, we have to pick that up. Um, but at any rate, like that. That's part of the problem too. And the distinction yeah. between like am I eating avocados or am I having bacon? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So so. Robbie's like, uh, I'll let him touch on the plant-based ketogenic yes. diet here because this is something that's like very, very important to understand in today's world. Yeah, so question. I think, I mean, in the book, we, we took this angle very clearly as well. We wanted to make sure that the low-carbohydrate ketogenic world, you know, felt respected and understood. And I think Cyrus did a good job of listing that. That's a whole new approach to nutrition, guys. <laughs> I know, you, know? Yeah. you guys wrote and, a book and you wanted the other side to feel respected yeah. and understood. We actually like people. <laughs> you like people? Wow. Yeah. And really acknowledge the results. And um, also, you know, celebrate the fact that, hey, at the end of the day, we all have a lot more in common than we don't have in common when it comes to healthy lifestyle practices. So let's celebrate that. I think the biggest problem when it comes to public health is apathy. People just aren't even trying or doing just anything tune at all. it out. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you know, I had that personal experience on the plant-based keto diet, ketogenic diet, living with type 1 diabetes. My insulin use dropped because I'm not eating carbohydrates. I'm not challenging myself, like Cyrus was saying. My blood glucose was flat, easy to control. Insulin dosing is, was quite small, makes life a little bit easier as well. So I, I understand where they're coming from, especially when it comes to type 1 diabetes and, and diabetes in general. Part of the reason that's so much confusion around this specific disease it's one of the few conditions you can self-monitor on a meal-by-meal -meal basis. You don't know if your kidney disease got worse based on that one meal. You don't know what happened to your, your vessels after Real one meal. Real-time feedback. Yeah, but we could, we could test it on our meter. Or nowadays, lots of people have continuous glucose monitors. Yep. So the Freestyle Libre has become very prominent in the type 2 world. A lot of people are wearing these things. And then the Dexcom is more popular in the type 1 world. But people have this data. So they see their numbers coming down and they're like, yeah, wow, this is working. This is good. I'm, I'm taking control of my diabetes. My A1C is non-diabetic for a lot of people. They're reducing their medication needs. But what we're really concerned about is the long-term consequences of not being glucose tolerant. Right. So there's, a, again, a lot of debate about insulin sensitivity, pathological versus physiological, all that stuff. But the one thing that there is no argument about is if you choose to eat a ketogenic diet, whether plant-based or animal-based, you're eating yourself into glucose intolerance. 
You cannot eat a banana and some blueberries. You can't have some quinoa. You can't have a little bit of potato. Your blood glucose will spike dramatically. And if you're going to try and carb adapt, the only way to do that is start applying principles of the mastering diabetes method, which is reducing your fat intake, increasing your whole carbohydrate content. So that's the concern we have. And, uh, but again, it's still better. If you're going to do a ketogenic diet, please do a plant-based version. You're going to get a lot of fiber. You're going to get way more micronutrients, and that's going to definitely reduce your long-term chronic disease risk. But we just don't know. This diet has not been studied. Sure. Sure. So in terms of other diets that are trending right now, we won't talk about the J-Lo diet, <laughs> but yeah. intermittent I just fast. started that last week. <laughs> it's like no carb, no sugar, no anything. <laughs> um, it, diet, lifestyle, intermittent fasting. What's your take? Yeah, I love intermittent fasting. I actually got a chance to study it while I was at UC Berkeley for five years. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it was like the Way early. center. Yeah, exactly. Because so you're studying this in what, 2000? This was 2007 to 2012. Wow, Yeah, way early. And it's funny that you say that, actually, because I remember at the time I would have these conversations with my other colleagues, and we were investigating many different permutations of an intermittent fasting regimen, whether it was... 25% calorie restriction, whether it was alternate day fasting, whether it was modified alternate day fasting or any permutation thereof. And I remember saying to them over and over and over again, I was like, guys, this stuff is really interesting and we can study this stuff in mice and rats all day long. <laughs> but I guarantee you, I will bet the farm on the fact that people are not going to adopt this because what you're telling people is to eat less food and to increase the amount of time that they spend in the fasted state. People don't want to hear this message. <laughs> Boy, Boy was, was I wrong. wrong. Boy <laughs> was I wrong. It's unbelievable. Yeah. For sure. I mean, yeah, it's just like we were saying earlier, it's one of the, it's like one number one or number two most popular dietary trends in the history of humankind, which is unbelievable. So as it, when it comes to intermittent fasting, uh, intermittent fasting is a phenomenal way to increase your insulin sensitivity. It's a phenomenal way to reduce your blood lipids. It's a phenomenal way to promote weight loss. And we've known this in the scientific literature for many years, even since the 1930s when the original experiments on calorie restriction were first being conducted in mice and rats. Um, and, and so when it comes to intermittent fasting, we, we, it's actually a cornerstone of the mastering diabetes method. We teach people how to perform an intermittent fast, how long to do it for, and why it's beneficial in the first place. So specifically for people who are living with some form of insulin resistance, again, these are people who are either at risk for diabetes, which is the most of the population, or people who are already diagnosed with some form of diabetes. When you begin an intermittent fasting regimen, you're basically allowing your body to spend 16 plus hours in a fasted state. And in that situation, you're forcing your muscles, you're forcing your liver to basically go internal. They're sort of having to meditate and say, okay, I'm not really getting anything from the outside world here. There's a very low quantity of nutrients in the blood therefore i gotta burn what i already have inside of me so they go internal and they start to do some housekeeping and say okay let's take this lipid droplet and let's decrease the size of it a little bit let's turn some of that into atp let's take this glycogen and turn some of that into atp <laughs> all right let's let's burn some of these stored fuels that we've accumulated over the course of time and as a result of that the the, the fuel storage within each one of these tissues starts to decrease 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 and what that means is that the next time you go and eat food uh, that the nutrients from that food, assuming that you're eating a nutrient-dense meal, which is what we recommend, those nutrients are then readily absorbable and readily easily to be uptaken by the tissues that are now in their sort of cellular state of hunger. And so it's sort of like a double whammy. You're forcing them to housekeep. You're forcing them to decrease their, their stored nutrients. And then you're providing uh, higher quality nutrients in return. And as a result of that, they can absorb those nutrients and then that over the course of time that can promote optimal health and actually increase longevity. So I'm curious when you were doing this study with regards to the general population, in your opinion, was it more about the restricted window or the restriction of calories or, you know, resting the gut? There, there are various different theories. And some people will say today, like, you know what, don't restrict the calories. You should still eat and eat as much, but you just, it's all about the window. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious about that. And also part two of the question, a lot of people have different opinions on 
when you start to realize the benefits, whether it's 14, 16, then some people will talk about autophagy at 18 or 20 and then the 36 and like it's all developing, if you will. For sure. I'm curious, like what, what did you see and if you, de- you were able to develop a pin- an opinion on this for yeah. the general population? For sure. So we listened to your uh, podcast with David Sinclair uh, yeah. and uh, about his book Lifespan. He loves the mice and the rats though. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's funny because when I was in graduate school, I was reading like I, I read practically every single one of his papers. Like yeah, that, that guy is an absolute he's next god. Level, but, absolutely, uh, yeah. he is brilliant. And so uh, you know, even he admitted on your podcast, he said, you know, we don't really know the answer to many of these questions. And I think that is a true statement. I think you know the best scientists in the world will admit that they know something, but that they really don't know a lot, right? And I think that's a classic example here in intermittent fasting. There's so many things that are happening under the surface at the same time. There are so many things that are happening inside of your brain, inside of your liver, inside of mm-hmm. your pancreas, inside of your kidney. And so for me to be able to point a finger and say, oh, the reason why intermittent fasting is good is because it reduces kidney inflammation. Right. It could be a true statement, but it's just an incomplete statement. Right. So, um, you know, what we have seen and what, you know, the research that we were doing back in graduate school, what we were trying to do is we were trying to induce insulin resistance in, in mice and rats using a high fat diet strange. We would feed them a high fat diet for eight weeks. We'd make them insulin resistant. And then we would try and rescue that insulin sensitivity using some variation of an intermittent fasting regimen. And what we found was that, uh, within a very short period of time, we're talking one weeks, one week, two weeks, three weeks max, we could start to see dramatic improvements in their glucose tolerance. We started to see dramatic improvements in their, uh, in their lipid panels, their cholesterol would come down as well. And we also saw dramatic improvements in the rate at which tumors were progressing. So a pre-existing tumor has an opportunity to progress at an accelerated rate if the supply of nutrients is high, and especially if those nutrients are coming from refined sources or from high in saturated fat, or if there's a significant amount of saturated fat. But when you restrict calorie intake and you prolong that fasting window, the tumor itself get starved of nutrients. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, using some very, very, very sophisticated mass spectral, spectrometric techniques, we were able to actually measure the rate at which these cells are dividing. And, and we found that within a very short period of time that inducing a state of calorie restriction, which is again, reduction in calories, promoted a, a reduced rate of replication inside of these tumors. And as a result of that, the, the mice that already had uh, pre-existing tumors or mice that were prone to developing tumors were protected uh, simply by reducing their total calorie intake. I'm curious, one last question about the, the mice and the rats. With all this experimentation, mm-hmm. anything on sugar? Anything on sugar? Meaning? Yeah, like inject all sorts of things I've read or seen, injecting mice and rats with sugar mm. with regards to tumor growth and what it can do. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah. so this is actually an important question. In In the world of plant-based nutrition and in the world of veganism, I will say there's this uh, pervasive methodology that like sugar is not the problem, that sugar doesn't cause diabetes, sugar doesn't cause cancer, that sugar is like, it's not the problem. Let's focus on other things. And I think I would, I would agree with that. And I would also disagree with that. We know from plenty of evidence-based research that when you take a refined sugar, whether it's just straight glucose, whether it's fructose or whether it's sucrose, which is a combination of the two of them, and you feed that to laboratory animals, you feed that to humans, you can induce hepatic insulin resistance, which is liver insulin resistance. You can increase blood lipids. You can uh, stimulate um, obesity. You can increase the risk for type 2 diabetes. We know all of these things happen as a result of taking on refined sugar. Um, And so... I want to, I, it's important to understand that like, yeah, reducing your total intake of sugar is going to have a huge effect. Um, but also, um, vil, you know, getting rid of sugar as being the culprit and saying like, it's not sugar that's the problem. What we're saying is that carbohydrate rich food is actually the solution, right? right? And that if you were to eat sugar, it's less problematic than other things in your diet. And that is a true statement. Right. There's a lot of research that shows that, you know, again, this is a very controversial statement and I'll say it right now, but eating a diet that's high in saturated fat can progress, can increase your risk for many chronic diseases. Okay. And then I know there's a lot of people that would disagree with me for saying that, but, uh, there's a strong basis for that evidence. And as a result of that, um, we like to think of saturated fat 
as being a, a more problematic than refined sugar, although both of them are problematic. But with regards to sad fat, are there any that you think are healthier than, like if you were to rank your sad fats, mm -hmm. all bad, or in your opinion, some that are okay? So here's what I would say. I would say in terms of like the overall spectrum of fat, you have trans fat without question yeah. the worst, the most problematic. Everyone's on board with that one. Everyone's on board, yeah. We don't need to talk about that. Saturated fat is the second most problematic. Unsaturated fat would be the third most problematic as far as inducing insulin resistance is concerned. For, sure. For sure. Okay, where would sugar fit into that one? Uh, I, I don't know the answer. I think maybe somewhere between the saturated fat and unsaturated fat. Are yeah. you asking about Especially? saturated fat from different sources, like different yeah, sources so of like, saturated so fat? So like specifically, you know, olive oil, mm. the oils. Mm. People love, we love to talk about the oils. Yeah. You got <laughs> olive oil, coconut oil, MCT oil, then you got the vegetable oils, and the yeah. you know, so, so forth. I'm always curious about that. Yeah, we are not fans of any type of oil for, for a number of reasons. This guy can go into well, detail. I mean, this, I well, mean, to answer the question, like in general, when, when it comes to insulin resistance. Yeah, we're talking about diet, all insulin of them, resistance. All of these, yes. any one of those different sources of saturated fat is going to be problematic. Yes. And then in addition to that, there's also uh, when you intake oils, they can also negatively affect your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. Sure. So you have a much higher omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, which can then lead to long-term consequences and reduce your omega-3 status and, um, you know, cause problems with, uh, you know, having a sufficient amount of omega-3 in your blood at all times. Sure. You're talking to the guy who had 17 vials of blood taken this morning for, I, I get, I get blood testing every quarter. Wow. So How are you even awake right now? <laughs> coffee, <laughs> coffee, coffee. I'm also a big guy. I'm six foot seven, 200 plus pounds. So 17 vials, that's like three for like the average American. You got plenty of blood. Um, so I want, we talked a lot about insulin. So I'd be remiss not to ask your opinion in, on insulin and why it's not the enemy. Oh, yes, yeah, one of my favorite topics. Insulin's not the enemy. Insulin has never been the enemy. Insulin will never be the enemy. Insulin is a required biological hormone that is necessary for life. If I don't make insulin and I don't take insulin from the outside world, I will die within, call it a month to two months. If you lost your ability to secrete insulin, and you didn't take any insulin from the outside world, that is not compatible with life. So insulin is a, is a hormone that's present across all mammalian species, and uh, it's required to uh, elicit an, uh, thousands of biological effects. Everything from glucose uptake to fatty acid uptake to amino acid uptake to DNA synthesis and repair to RNA synthesis to protein synthesis, you name it, glycogen synthesis, it's, it's very important. Um, where people go wrong is in pointing a finger and saying insulin is bad, I'm trying to reduce the total amount of insulin inside of my blood. So every single, you know, a, a healthy individual, I'm going to take you as an example. You seem like a very healthy guy. Right? I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying. <laughs> you probably exercise frequently. You probably live in a low-stress environment. I, yeah, I don't no. know about the low-stress. I actually don't exercise that much. You don't? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, well, we have two little we have a three-year-old and a seven-month-old oh wow so it's what can we do in 10 minutes so i'll go to the gym twice a week which is in our building mm -hmm. for less for 10 minutes do you walk a lot i walk a lot yes. i love yes. walking i walk a lot i always take the stairs mm -hmm. uh we're I'll huge fans of walking i walk a lot so I'm much more uh blue zones approved mm -hmm. in terms of my uh, uh, constant movement yeah i'm always moving i'm always walking around so. got it yeah, and I always, I, I, you know, I don't think you can exercise your way out of a bad diet. Agreed. It all starts with food. Okay, so let, let's take you as a, uh, do you have some? I was going to say, walking, it's a big deal for people living with diabetes. I cannot emphasize enough, no matter what type, type 1, type 2, you just start walking more, you will see improvements in your blood glucose management. It's really powerful. Okay, so, so somebody living without chronic disease, we'll sure. just say that for the time being. Somebody living without chronic disease is, is producing a what's considered physiologically normal amount of insulin on a daily basis. And that physiological normal amount of insulin is going to vary depending on how tall you are, uh, your body weight, whether you're male, whether you're female, how old you are, you name it. So let's just put that uh, somewhere between, I think it's 20 to 50 units per day. Is that right? Yeah, roughly. Somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, okay? absolutely. 20 to 50 units per day, right? So that's considered physiologically normal, and that's the amount of insulin that your pancreas would normally secrete in order to elicit a whole collection of biochemical reactions that are required for your metabolism to function. If 
you started out, let's say, with 30 units of insulin that your pancreas is producing. And then over the course of time, you adopted some collection of lifestyle habits that turned 30 units into 35, mm. and then into 40. And then before you know it, now you're secreting 50 units of insulin per day, right? If that were the case, then you're basically secreting an excess amount of insulin. You're now secreting 20 units of excess insulin per day. And it's the excess insulin that we know uh, so many times over in the scientific literature, it's excess insulin that actually increases your chronic disease risk. Not only for insulin resistance, yeah. but also for heart disease and also for cancer, yep. right? And so the goal is not to go from 50 units of insulin on a daily basis to zero or from 50 down to five. The goal is to get from 50 down to, again, 30. That's your physiologically normal amount of insulin. If we can get you there, we can hold you there constant, and you remain in a non-diseased state, then you're doing a good thing. Well, insulin, I'm glad you, insulin is important for everything. So something I look at, heart disease runs in my family, not diabetes, but so I look at, you know, that's why I get the 17 by, and I'm, I'm a tinkerer. I love knowing what's working and not working. Um, but it's, it's important. Whether you're pre-diabetic or not, it's an important marker to pay yeah. attention to. It's, it's one of the most important yeah, markers. Exactly. Period. Exactly. Exactly. You got your fasting insulin level tested today? I get everything. So like I had, uh, so my father died of heart disease in his mid-40s. I'm 45, so a couple of years ago, I started a little bit more sophisticated around testing beyond like, you know, cholesterol, blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've talked about this a little bit here, but I'm sure you're familiar with homocysteine. Mm -hmm. So everything was pretty much normal. My homocysteine was ridiculously high, oh, 63. Was your B12 uh, off? Everything else was like pretty much in line, normal. And like, I have the labs and I was like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I have the gene, I have the double, I'm MTHFR, C677T. So I basically went from 63 to 12 through a cocktail of B vitamins. Interesting. Yeah. And like diet, I've changed. I'm definitely more plant-based now. Like I can't eat. I, I, grew, I used to love meat. I just can't. If I start eating a lot of red meat, my lipids just start to go the wrong way. Mm -hmm. I go plant-based like boom. So like I'm like 90% plant-based, but at any rate, like, so I look at everything and I have access to all these great Frank Lippmann's, my doctor, so I can access. So like every quarter I look at everything. Mm -hmm. What's, 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 you know, we tweak things and so forth, but at any rate, that's great. So I look at insulin and, and, uh, you know, it makes you think of, you know, as we're talking about all this stuff, why I think we love talking about all these great markers to test because a lot of people don't have access to incredible doctors like Agreed. Frank Lippmann. So they got to walk into their doctor and say like, no, 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 I want to test for this. Yeah, yeah exactly. You have to like advocate on be, your own Exactly. You have to. You have to be yeah. the, you know, Lippmann will say you need to be the conductor of your own healthcare orchestra. Mm -hmm. So like what runs in my family? What do I want to test for? Mm -hmm. You know, when I talk about homocysteine, a lot of people are like, what the hell is that? Mm -hmm. So yeah. Agreed. Now, when it comes to insulin in particular, also, there's a, I think one of the things that I see going wrong right now is that there's this overemphasis on the need to have to reduce, 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 and almost like get to as close to zero as possible with insulin. So it is, you know, again, in the, I'm not trying to point a finger at anybody here in the ketogenic world, but I think as an as a overall philosophy, the ketogenic world is very fixated on making sure that your fasting insulin level is below five. And that is perfectly fine. I'm not going to argue with that by any stretch of the imagination. But in order to get there, adopting a ketogenic diet actually, again, increases your base level of glucose intolerance. And that is problematic, such that if you were to go eat a carbohydrate-rich meal, then your post-prandial or your post-meal insulin level would skyrocket at that point, right? So again, having a low fasting insulin is very important. Having a low post-meal, post-glucose, post-carbohydrate meal I would argue is equally as important. Right. And if you never challenge that state, and if you never even try that, then you're basically missing an entire aspect of glucose metabolism that is absolutely very important. And it leads you to making a conclusion that is incomplete. Yeah. So you mentioned metabolism, and I, you know, I think of weight management, and it's something that a lot of people, you know, have trouble with there's a struggle and what i like about what your program and what you're talking about is a you're talking about carbohydrates and and a, and a result is 
well, not you're talking about carbohydrates, you're talking about enjoying carbohydrates and lots of them, and a result happens to be weight loss. And, you know, I want to go back to the earlier point, you know, in carbs and distinguishing between carbs. And I think this advice is sound for anyone, whether they're pre-diabetic or not. Like, what are your what are your favorite? If you're ranking your your favorite healthy carbs, where if I'm just a healthy 25 year old walking around, you know, going to yoga, mm-hmm. w- rank those carbs. Yeah, I mean, we've we've created a traffic light system for helping people understand what to eat. We have a green light category, <laughs> a yellow light category, and a red light category. And the green light category has our favorite carbohydrates listed first. So we have fruits. Then starchy vegetables, legumes, intact whole grains. But fruits is going to be our favorite. We personally love all fruits. Bananas, mangoes, papayas, pears, jackfruit. I mean, you name it. So that's, that's personally, that's our favorite, no question. Cyrus loves chickpeas, big time. Huge fan. <laughs> um, you know, and just, again, potatoes, sweet potatoes, yams, like all of them. Whatever food that each individual loves, we want them to get to enjoy, no matter what form of diabetes they're living with. What's your favorite green? I love arugula. Oh, yeah. This guy is an arugula phenom. Arugula's good. My favorite green. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question before. You put me on the spot here. Really? Yeah. No one's asked you that? How about that Bloomsdale spinach I've been feeding? I mean, that stuff's good. These guys walk to the podcast with their own vegetables (laughs) in hand. They are on brand. They are authentic. (laughs) I have my lunch prepared afterwards. I'm ready to go. Okay. I'm going to go. I'm going to say lacinato kale. That stuff is. Mm, Okay. I like the the specificity on the the kale. Yeah. I like it. Not all kale is created equal. (laughs) And so last question for you guys, again, like there's so much happening in our world. There's a lot of, you know, interesting studies. I'm curious, what's interesting to you? Like, what do you, what do you think we're going to be talking about six months or a year from now? It's a lot of great research. Um, I mean, one of my favorite, I have two really cool studies I like to talk about when it comes to teaching people that you get to eat more and way less, which for a lot of people, it's like mind-blowing. How, how is that even possible? And so there's a study done as in 1991, a little bit older, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and Dr. Terry Shintani has a bunch of obese people, 19 obese people, and he feeds them an ad libitum diet. You get to eat as much carbohydrate-rich food as you want. So these are people in Hawaii. It was 19 obese Hawaiians. He feeds them their native Hawaiian diet and says, okay, what's going to happen here? So he feeds them taro, poi, which is just mashed up taro, sweet potatoes, yams, papaya, mangoes, bananas. The only thing that's limited on this diet is five to seven ounces of chicken or fish per day. All right. So what happens in 21 days of eating ad libitum as much as they want of these really focusing on the carbohydrate rich food, they lose 17 pounds, cholesterol drops 14% and their fasting blood glucose dropped as well with reduction in medication. So it went from 163 in the fasting blood glucose to 123. But again, that's just 21 days and that 163 was medicated. So there would have been a bigger difference if they ate their normal diet without their diabetes medications. So the, in this study, they analyzed how much food did they weigh, did they eat before they came in. So it's 3.8 pounds and they consumed about 2,600 calories. In this study, the, during the experiment period, 21 days, they ate 4.1 pounds of food per day and they ate 1,600 calories and they felt satiated. So they did a validated mm. survey to figure out are you guys actually satisfied? And the answer was yes. They weren't hungry. They were not calorie restricted. They didn't have to exercise. And they lost 17 pounds in 21 days. Wow. It's pretty powerful. And then a similar study done in 2017, the broad study. This was a randomized controlled trial. There were 65 participants. They had the control group just following standard diabetes care. And then the other group got standard diabetes care plus a dietary intervention, which was very similar to our traffic light system. They were free living people just being taught how to eat. They showed them the movie Forks Over Knives, said eat all the carbohydrate-rich food you want, all the potatoes, all the fruits, all, whatever you want, lots of greens. You got to limit the high-fat foods, limit the avocados, limit the nuts and seeds, keep your percent of calories from fat between 7 and 15%. That's what they ate. And so in this study, they reported the greatest weight loss of any study ever published without calorie restriction and without exercise at 6 and 12 months. So they lost 26 pounds at six months. They also saw every single participant reduce their medication use. They saw a A1C value drop from 6.0 to 5.5 in the intervention group. In the control group, their A1C went up 5.5% to 5.7. So they went 
doing standard diabetes care became more diabetic moving into the pre-diabetes category. So it was a great study, and it just, again, illustrates when you're eating healthy whole foods, you genuinely can eat large amounts. Right. It really is. You're gonna, it's the bulk that gets you full. It's the fiber plus the water that makes the food so satisfying. And by the time you're like mechanically full, like, I don't want any more food, you haven't eaten that many calories. It's sort of naturally calorie restricting, and you can adjust the calorie density if you want to either lose weight or gain weight, all within the parameters of the green light foods that we have listed in the book. What about you, Cyrus? Okay, the question is, what are we going to be talking about six yeah. to 12 months from now? Yeah. Okay, here's what I, there, there's a difference between what I want to be talking about <laughs> and what I, th- what I think the world is going to be talking about. You can give two answers if you want. Yeah. What I think the world is going to be talking about is going to be keto, keto, keto. It's going to get it's going to get even more hardcore keto, and there's going to be a lot more conversation about is the ketogenic diet something that's actually good for long-term health? Because there's a substantial number of short-term studies that are showing improvements in 10 weeks or three months or six months. But over the course of time, we're going to get these studies that are going to be two, two years, five years, and beyond. And I think that's going to be a big topic of conversation. Do I want to talk about that? Sure. I think it's moderately interesting. I would rather talk about the true power of eating carbohydrate-rich foods. Like, I mean, it's not like a broken record at this point. (laughs) I would love to see more studies showing the true metabolic power of, just like what Robbie's saying, of a diet that contains more fruits, a diet that contains more starchy vegetables without calorie restriction. That's what I want to see. And I think that the evidence is there. The evidence has been there for a long time. I would like it to become more popular. I would like it to become more mainstream because that's where the true beauty of a plant-based diet lies. And that's where the true, I think a lot of science that's yet to be discovered lies. But yet somehow the conversation is not really focused on that. And the conversation is more in the sort of, how do I eat more fat and more bacon and more cheese? Look, I always go back my favorite quote about nutrition, which I think describes my philosophy Michael Pollan, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, mm-hmm. right? It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. It's a very simple philosophy, and that's one of the things that I've, we've also learned over the course of time is that this world can get really, really, really complicated, and we can zoom down into tiny little details about arguing where the triglyceride entered and where it exited and how it got converted <laughs> and yada, 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 and they de novo lipogenesis here and there. We can geek out on all that stuff. It's fine. But at the end of the day, Again, what matters is the public health recommendations. What matters is what people are, are actually doing in the real world. And if you have a philosophy that's just that simple, you know, eat the, bio, the, the consensus here amongst many different types of researchers now is eat a diet that is mostly plants, right? Small amounts of animal food. And if you do that, you reduce your stress levels, you exercise frequently, boom, that's the recipe yeah. for health. Can I have one more thing that people are going to talk about in the world of diabetes health specifically? Sure. I just want to be like ahead of the curve because this, sure. is, this is going to become a big deal. Going on the record yeah, right now. Going on the record <laughs> right now. The diabetes world is going to get fascinated with the concept of time in range. And that is basically a metric where we're using continuous glucose monitors, which measure our blood glucose every five minutes. And again, these are becoming a big deal for type twos as well with the Freestyle Libre. It's a measure of how much time are we spending in a specific range. And the diabetes community, specifically for type 1, have said that the goal range is between 70 and 180. You want to be there for a minimum of 70% of the day. Okay? Now, you don't want to be low, which is below 70, for any more than 4% of the day. And then above 180, you want to minimize as much as possible. And unfortunately, the type 1 community at large, we're not doing well. So people who are using a multiple daily injections or a Dexcom G6, they're getting a time and range roughly between 50 to 65%. People who start using an insulin pump, they get a little bit improved time and range, maybe closer to 70%. People who use a closed loop system where a continuous glucose monitor talks to the insulin pump and sort of acts as a pancreas. They're calling it an artificial pancreas. There's a recent study just coming out, came out in 2019, New England Journal of Medicine, they found people were getting closer to 75% time and range. That was the average. And so this metric, people are going to talk about as being more important than A1C, mm-hmm. especially with type 1, because the criticism is that if you have a lot of low blood glucose readings, that's going to change the average, and you can get a artificially low A1C. Like, you're really going up and down. Right. You're spending a lot of time high. But because if you have enough lows, 
that average will come out good and you can get you know, a solid A1C. So we've decided to start really paying attention to this and really be able to address that concern. So I personally have been monitoring my time and range very diligently and I'm happy to report that following this method outlined in the book, my time and range is 91%, which is really high, really good. Oh. My low percentage is 3%, and then my high is like 6, and then less than 55 is like less than 1%. So I want people to know that when you're eating these carbohydrate-rich foods that we've been talking about all day long today, they do not cause insulin spikes. They're not going to cause this crazy volatility in your blood glucose. So these devices also measure your average blood glucose, and then you can measure the standard deviation from that average blood glucose. And you're supposed to be that average, uh, the standard deviation should be no more than three times what, to that average blood glucose. More than value. one third. More than one third. Sorry, I always messed that up. Okay. Cyrus fixes it for me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to report that mine is one fourth. So again, there's not like these crazy, crazy fluctuations. So, and people living with type 2 diabetes, the Freestyle Libre published data on 500,000 people using the device. And even them, the only people that got close to 70% were people who were scanning 14 times a day because it doesn't talk to your phone right, directly. Right. You have to scan. So it's really the, the diabetes community, like we're struggling in that area, and we want to show people how they can absolutely improve and, and use this technology. So the technology is crazy. Jason, I want to have some fun here. Can I talk to Siri? Sure. Hey Siri, what's my BG? It's 141 and steady. Last check two minutes ago. The fact, I mean, I've been living with type 1 diabetes for 20 years. And the fact that I can ask my phone what my blood glucose reading is, is mind boggling. So what we've done as far as technology is great, especially for people living with, with type 1. But of course, we want people to know you're living with pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Let's, let's make it a thing of the past. Let's, let's just make you insulin sensitive. I love it. Technology for the win. Boom. There it is. <laughs> Guys, congrats on the book, Mastering Diabetes. Everyone listening, whether you know someone struggling with diabetes or is pre-diabetic or you're just in, really interested in nutrition, must read. Pick it up. Thanks, guys. Thanks a ton. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Here.